Well, we are continuing a sermon series uh, this week that we've been in for some time uh, on Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, We've called this series a cross-shaped community because that's the journey that we've been on as we listen in on this conversation between Paul and these early Christians, is that he's trying to uh, explain to them, to bring home to them, the way that the cross of Jesus is meant not only to be their hope for life after death, but also their model for how they live their life in this world. That as a Christian church, as Christian uh, individuals, we are called to take our, uh, our shape by the self-giving, sacrificial, humble uh, life and death of Jesus. That that is the secret, not only for our public witness in our world, but also in how we relate to one another, how we order our lives. And so, uh, this week we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters returning to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. You know, I don't know if there's words uh, anywhere in the scriptures that are more full of hope, uh, and maybe at the same time also so full of terror as the words, such were some of you. Full of hope, because if you look at the list of sinners uh, described here, if such as these are saved, it means that uh, there is no limit to the breadth of Jesus' saving mercy in the gospel. That it is for and it is wide enough to encompass anyone and everyone, that no one is beyond Jesus' reach in the gospel. And yet full of terror, because it also means that there is nothing in your own life. No desires, no aspects of your identity, nothing, that you th- nothing so core to who you are, that Jesus cannot change it. That he cannot uh, transform it. That it cannot be caught up in his healing work in your life. And if we're honest, that is terrifying. Uh, because as the poet W.H. Auden said, most of us would rather die than change. We would rather die than give up uh, certain aspects 
of the way we live, the way we relate, the way we do our lives. You know, each one of us in our own way tends to limit, to truncate uh, the power of the gospel of Jesus. And yet Paul uh, here in these verses is saying that the gospel cannot be limited. It can't be limited in its breadth or its reach and who it encompasses. And it can't be limited in its power, in what it offers you and what it can change in your life if and when uh, Jesus comes into your life. Now, that Paul is talking about this at all uh, at this moment in his letter seems odd to us. Right? He is, the, the whole first part of our reading was over what can seem to us to be a rather mundane situation. Uh, believers in the church taking one another to court uh, over lawsuits. You know, certainly uh, we're at a part in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he's going through different ethical situations uh, in the Corinthian church. Last week's was certainly more salacious, right? A man uh, taking up residence in a romantic relationship with his former mother-in-law, right? That, that seems a little more dramatic than legal disputes among Christians, And yet, for this whole swath of different issues that are going on in Corinth, from divisions and arguments in the church, uh, to the rich and the wealthy and the wise bragging uh, over those they deem as poor or foolish, to the sexual infidelity that's gone on now to this lawsuit, Paul uh, wisely diagnoses that all of these uh, disparate issues all come from a common cause. You know, it reminds me of the story of a man who went into a doctor's office. And he went to the doctor and he said, the doctor said, well, tell me what's bothering you. And he said, he took his finger and he pointed, he said, well, it hurts when I do this, when I I press on my neck. But then it also hurts when I I press here. And strangely, even, even in my knee, it hurts when I press. And the doctor looked at him and said, well, I think I've diagnosed your problem. I think you have a broken right pointer finger. He recognized that these, I was expecting more of a laugh with that one, honestly, that uh, he, he recognized that uh, these disparate issues were, were coming from a common overlooked root. And for Paul, his diagnosis is that all of these, all of these issues come from a core problem, that, they, that this church is more shaped by the values and priorities of Corinth than, than they are by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they have brought too much of the selfishness and the ambition and the competition the striving after their own desires that marked life in the Corinthian context, that bringing that into the church, they look more like Corinth than they do like Christ. They're shaped more by its values than they are shaped by the cross. And so Paul calls them back to their identity in Christ, calls them to live out of the reality of who they really and truly are. When he says, in such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He reminds them to live out of who they are. They're not trying to live out of somebody they're not. They're not after resources they don't have. They need to live into the identity that they have already been named in Jesus Christ. And so the presenting problem uh, in this case, in the first part of our verse, has to do with these lawsuits Uh, between the Christian believers in Corinth. And again, we might look at this and say, well, what is the big deal here? What is the big deal if two people find themselves at an impasse uh, with taking their dispute into the civil courts? And Paul helps him to think through this. He actually does it somewhat mockingly. 
He says, is none of you wise enough to, to serve as a judge in this case? Remember, these Corinthians love to boast and to brag about their superior wisdom, about how their wisdom exceeded other Christians, let alone those on the outside. And yet here, when they find themselves in this situation, when they find themselves at odds with each other, they appeal uh, to the civil courts of the Roman Empire. And a little bit of cultural background helps us understand why this was such a big deal uh, to Paul. We know, uh, based on very credible uh, historical research, that the civil courts of Rome at this time were utterly corrupt. Right? We believe that the criminal courts uh, were fairly just. If you committed a crime, you could uh, expect to go see a judge who would rule on your case. But the civil courts, where people uh, took lawsuits among one another, uh, pretty much every time the judge ruled in favor of the most wealthy of the two plaintiffs. The judge ruled in favor of the one who was able, honestly, to bribe him the most effectively. And so the civil courts were completely in the pocketbook of the rich. It had become a tool for the rich to get over on the poor. That if someone had something you wanted and you knew that you had access to a better lawyer, if you knew you had access to more funds to bribe the right judge, that you could prosecute the case and get your way. One uh, well-known play by the playwright Petronius, uh, one of his characters says this, Of what avail are laws uh, to be where money rules alone, and the poor suitor can never succeed? So a lawsuit is nothing more than a public auction, and the nightly juror who sits listening to the case approves with the record of his vote something that's been bought. So you understand what the, the context of this is. Paul's writing to these Christians who are going to the courts as another means for the rich to get their way over and against the poor, even in the church. In the church where the, those without are supposed to be able to rely on the shelter and the protection of those of means. In an early church, if you remember the book of Acts, where they, they treated their property as essentially common, right? They treated one another as family to say what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. If somebody has need, I'll sell what's mine to give to you. And now, hardly a generation after that, the rich are using every means at their disposal to get richer at the expense of the poor, even within the church. And Paul is saying, this is not the way that it's supposed to be. You know, you might hear that and say, you know what, that is, Dave, that, that's just the way the world works, right? As long as there have been rich and have been poor, the rich have used the means at their disposal to increase their possessions at the expense of the poor. That's just the way the world works. And that's precisely what Paul is saying. He says, you're right, that is the way the world works. But that is not the way the church is supposed to work. The church is supposed to be a place where the vulnerable are protected, where we look out for our brothers and sisters. That's why he says here, right? You, you, you wrong and defraud others. Would it not be better if you yourself were cheated and defrauded, right? Look at the image of Jesus who himself was the victim of injustice. And yet here you are pursuing injustice for your own gain. That is not uh, the way that it's supposed to work. And so Paul uh, brings from there this, this picture, uh, this explanation of the gospel that begins with such were some of you. Because his argument to them is essentially, listen, you don't have to live this way anymore. 
You don't have to live in such a way that you use every legal means at your disposal to get your own way. So that you use every, every means at your disposal to get what you think you have to have. He says, look, not only are you not called to live that way, you don't have to live that way anymore. You are new in Christ. You know, it is an incredibly freeing way to approach the stubborn problems in our lives. Those habits and the patterns that we cannot break despite, despite our best efforts. Isn't there a world of difference between someone coming to you uh, and giving you the rules and saying, stop it, cut it out, you can't live this way anymore, versus them coming to you and saying, listen, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to live enslaved to your own passions, your own desires, your own greed. It doesn't have to be that way for you. Another way of life uh, truly is possible. And so Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This word unrighteous, uh, in this, in this uh, instance, he's using it, he's in- introduced it in verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, that you go to law before the, unju- uh, the unrighteous judges. So here he's using unrighteous to describe those people who are outside of the church. Those people who live by a different ethical code uh, than the Corinthian Christians, those who haven't yet uh, met Jesus. And so he's using that word unrighteous in this way. And he says, do not be deceived. And then he gives us quite a list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor swindlers, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right, it's important to remember uh, in this list that this is him enumerating the different forms that unrighteousness has taken in the world. Right, this is not uh, meant to be a list of people uh, who are outside of the reach of God's grace. Right, this is describing uh, in this setting uh, the, the lifestyles of people uh, who are currently outside of the kingdom of God, who are a part of the surrounding culture. All right, let's talk about this list. Sometimes when, you're, when you hear the scripture read, don't you think, Dave, did you read this ahead of time uh, before you decided to preach through 1 Corinthians? Um, and I assure you I did. Uh, because it is important uh, that no matter how distasteful uh, or difficult we might find certain sections of the Bible, uh, that we seek to understand all of it. Uh, and in fact, at times we need the parts uh, that we are most offended by the most uh, to help us uh, to confront those blind spots in our own lives. And so here Paul lays out uh, an exhaustive list. It's a list that comes from the book of Deuteronomy um, of various forms of sin in the world. It's meant to be an exhaustive list of types of sin that you will find in the world. And yet, where do our eyes immediately fall uh, when you read this list? Your ears don't immediately perk up when he's talking about, yeah, revilers, drunkards, swindlers. right? But when you get to neither the adulterer nor the sexually immoral or those who practice homosexuality. You can almost hear the the crickets uh, in the room as as we highlight those three things. Right, and that has been the case, uh, regrettably, for much of the history of the church. Right, that we do take certain classes or types of sin and pull them out and somehow give them different or special treatment. Uh, But really, all three of those descriptors of types of sexual brokenness that we encounter in the world, uh, 
He tells them uh, sexual immorality, adultery, and homosexuality. The word he uses for sexual immorality uh, is essentially a catch-all for all of those things. It's the Greek word porneia, uh, from which we get our word pornography. And it's, it is the desire and the practice of satisfying sexual, sexual desires outside of the covenant context of marriage. And so it is a broad enough net uh, to capture all of the things uh, that we do to satisfy ourselves, to satisfy our desires, outside of the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And then he enumerates two particular modes of that when he talks about adultery and homosexuality as being two of the ways that we seek uh, to satisfy our desires. You know, unfortunately, uh, there is a history in the church of treating these as categories of people who are somehow beyond uh, the saving reach of Jesus. There's a history of using these categories uh, to describe people uh, that we view as somehow worse or different sinners than others. And it is to our great shame uh, that we have done that. You know, there is not a person sitting in this room that is not condemned by this list. There wasn't a person sitting in the Corinthian church when this list was read. Remember, these, this was an oral letter that would have been read out loud. And there wasn't a person sitting in that room that at some point as the list is read didn't go, ooh, that's me. I'm the greedy one. I'm the adulterous one. I'm the drunkard. Right? Everyone sitting here uh, stands condemned by this list uh, that Paul gives here. You know, <clears throat> let's look at one of these. One of these topics. Greed. You know, I believe that we may live in the most uh, greedy and consumer-oriented culture that's ever existed on the face of the earth, right? I think that we have access to more uh, than almost any other human beings that ever lived. We are more prone to find our meaning and our value in what we can get and hoard and secure for ourselves. It's no better in the church than it is in the world. The uh, I think recent studies show that Christians give on average about 2.9% of their income uh, towards charitable organizations or churches. And outside the church, that number is about 2.7, right? So the greed that exists uh, in American culture is just as present in the church as it is anywhere else. And yet, you know what? Never once in my life as a pastor have I ever had anyone come to me and say, Pastor, I think I need counseling because I'm worried that I'm greedy. I'm worried that I'm not generous enough with my money. Pastor, would you pray for me? I've never once had somebody come up to me and say, would you, pastor, are greedy people eligible to join this church? I've never had somebody come up to me and say, pastor, I only gave 2% of my income. Can I be saved? Can I become a Christian? And yet we do that all of the time with the ways that we have related to people who've, who've wrestled with sexual guilt and brokenness in these areas of their lives. And if you look and consider the sexual uh, sins listed here, remember what Jesus does with the sin of adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he says, uh, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone is lusted, 
after a man or a woman in their own heart, you are guilty of adultery. And so whatever else is said uh, from this pulpit uh, about sexuality, about any of these categories of sinners listed, uh, you need to know that it comes from a sexually broken person. It comes from somebody who's speaking already condemned in and of myself by the list here. It comes from a lustful person and a greedy person. All of those things are present here. And so if you are here with us and you have ever been made to feel in a church like you don't belong because of some sin in your past, because of some persistent pattern of desire in your present, uh, we are so incredibly glad you're here. It is an honor. Uh, It is an act of incredible faith and hope uh, in light of how the church has reacted to you over different times in your life that you would trust us enough to come here. Uh, And that is not lost on us. And so we are incredibly glad and you are incredibly welcome uh, by Jesus and by us. Let's talk uh, about homosexuality and the fact that it's on the list. You know, there is an incredible amount of pressure in our cultural moment uh, to deal with homosexuality in such a way that removes it from the list. You know, we, we, the Christian tradition, uh, the testimony both of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and 2,000 years of church history, is that it belongs on the list. That it, that it is a form of disordered sexual desire that belongs on the list. And there's an incredible amount of pressure, both from the left and the right, for the church to remove it from the list. From the left, there's a pressure to remove it from the list such that it's no longer considered sinful at all. From the right, there's a pressure to remove it from the list and elevate it above the other sins on the list. And yet everywhere in the New Testament that homosexuality is spoken of, it's in a list almost exactly like this one. In Romans, Paul even puts it on a list with children who talk back to their parents. It says, you know, of sins, you know, like the sins of people who disrespect their parents and homosexuals. And so the proper Christian response uh, to homosexuality is to not give in to pressure on either side. To not so seek to accommodate our culture that we remove it and think we know better than Paul or the the other authors of Scripture, or 2,000 years of Christians who existed as a sexual minority in their culture as they lived by these standards, nor to remove it from the list and elevate it and treat it as a special class of sin, but simply to to treat these people as our brothers and our sisters, who they too uh, have access and in need of the saving reach of Jesus. And what Paul is after in this particular case is greed, right? Greed is the one of the sins on the list. That's the sin that's reared its ugly head in Corinth that's got them taking one another to court, that's got them using every means to their their availability to satisfy their desires, their desires for more. And it's to them in particular, to us in particular, that Paul says, and such were some of you. Notice he doesn't say such are some of you. Right? He was not under no uh, illusions that their sins had stopped and dried up. Right? Remember, the, the previous chapter, he was writing to a man who was in a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. And yet still, he says, such were some of you. Not such are some of you. 
He addresses the church in Corinth. Remember the, the, the second verse of our letter. To the saints who have been sanctified in Corinth. Now it's true as Christians, we live our lives as sinner saints. Right? Both of those are equally true of us at all times. We are sinful and broken and still prone to weakness and wandering. And saints, holy, set apart, forgiven, God's chosen possession. And when Paul comes to address this broken church, he doesn't address them first to the sinners who are in Corinth. He says, no, no, to the saints. Such were some of you. That even as temptations persist, even as you struggle and stumble and wrestle, you are no longer defined by your sin. You no longer draw your identity from your sin. Your sin no longer is your master. But you are now, as Paul says elsewhere, a slave to Christ. Your identity is wrapped up, hidden with God in Christ. Such that Paul can say to them, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. You know, we believe that what he's done here uh, with that last verse, verse 11, is that he's quoting an ancient Christian baptismal rite. It has the form uh, of of what we say at baptism. There's There's a reference to the Trinity in the name of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. There's this marking out that you have been washed, right? You've been washed by the waters of baptism. You've been sanctified, set apart as holy. You've been justified, counted righteous in Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is calling them to their identity that's theirs in their baptism. He's saying, don't you remember that you have been baptized into Jesus Christ? And that changes things. That changes who you are. If you are in Christ, it has an incredible power to change your identity, the way you think of yourself, the way you pursue your life, because you have been marked, set aside, washed, sanctified, and justified. And this really and truly is the way the gospel works in our life. As we go about trying to live the Christian life, right? We don't live a life of obedience wrestling with the temptations towards sin listed here in a belief that if we attain to that, then God will wash us and he'll sanctify us and he'll forgive us. But we say because we have been washed and sanctified and justified, we have a new power in us to live a new kind of life, to say no to our own selfish desires for more, whether it be for more money, for more drink, for more sex, that we are no longer have to be ruled by those desires. Because we are included in Christ. You know, our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, says, you know, we have the practice here. We we baptize both people who are new uh, converts into Christ as well as their children. But yet it says that whenever we practice a baptism, every one of us takes a part in the grace of Jesus through that baptism. And the confession says that we do that because every time we see a baptism, what we're supposed to be doing is remembering our own baptism, is remembering that we too, whether we were very, very young when it happened or adults, that we're to remember that we've been washed in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If if you've been here for a baptism, the words that we say over that baby or over that child or over that adult 
child of the covenant, beloved by God, baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Spirit. And the water trickles down over the forehead. They may cry, they may not cry, usually cry. And in that moment, we're supposed to remember that that is us. Just as helpless, just as, have, just as bringing nothing to the table in our own salvation, uh, is that baby in my arms. We have been marked uh, by the love of Jesus and set apart so that like the church at Corinth, we don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to treat one another according to the selfishness and the rules of this world. We don't have to live our lives out of our old identities. We are new and set free to walk in newness of life. You know, I will, I will say here, the two of the men uh, who have meant the most to me in my Christian life, two of the men uh, that I respect uh, more than almost any other Christian men that I know, uh, are men who have walked for decades, decades, wrestling with sexual attraction to members of the same sex. And they have walked uh, in self-denying faithfulness, choosing a life of fidelity to Christ in singleness over those desires in their life. And it has been uh, one of my great honors, both as a friend, as a pastor, to walk with them through the ups and downs of all that that means, right, of struggles, of stumbling, of wrestling with guilt and with shame, with wrestling with loneliness, with falling and getting up again, and all that, all that is wrapped up in that. And they have taught me. Watching them has taught me something of what it means to be made new in Christ. Because it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that our, that our sins go away in an instant. It doesn't mean that our temptations are taken from us. It doesn't mean that every day we wake up uh, to the sounds of, of birds chirping and rainbows and are just excited to face another sinless day with Jesus. It means that we walk by repentant faith, daily, 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 laying down our lives at the foot of the cross and thanking God for his grace, for his mercy, and his power. That's what it means to be made new, not to be made perfect, but as we walk with Christ by repentant faith, we too can say, such were some of us. I'm not who I will be. I'm not who I will be when I see Jesus face to face and I'm made like him. When all of the bondage of sin in this life, when all of my temptations and stumblings fall away, I'm not yet that. But by the grace of God, I no longer am who I once was. That I am being made new. And we are all, every one of us, adulterers, sexually immoral, liars, swindlers, drunkards, every one of us invited to the feast of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that we too have been called from death to life, that we have been brought out of the disordered mess of our own desires and set free to live a new life as your children. And so, Lord, when temptation presses in on us, when we feel overwhelmed by shame and guilt, when we feel overwhelmed by our addictions, when we feel powerless over such things, 
Lord Jesus, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, remind us that we have been washed. That the stain of sin has been washed away by the waters of baptism and our union with Christ. That we have been sanctified, set apart for you, not because we're special or good or wonderful, but simply because your grace knows no bounds. And that we have been justified, draped in the righteous robes of Jesus, so that when you see us, you see not our filth and our rags, but you see uh, your sons and your daughters. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would live into the newness of life that you won for us on Calvary, that you would give us the, the hope to no longer be defined by what we have been, but to live into who we are and who we will be. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.